this is Pastor Michael from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Truro. Thanks for taking the time to tune into this podcast. This is a bonus podcast. Uh, normally, we just podcast our Sunday morning sermons, but last Sunday was a little bit different than normal. I did a Q&A Sunday. I uh, had several questions that came in um, from uh, our sermon series on the Bible, and we just took a Sunday to answer some of those questions and to take some questions live off the floor as well. If you weren't here uh, and you missed it, you can go back and listen to that. Uh, you can listen to that on the podcast as well. Um, just it's just called the Bible Q and A. But there were also several questions that came in that I didn't have time to get to, and I promised uh, that I would uh, I would answer them via podcast. So this is a bonus podcast to answer some of those other questions that came in, Bible questions and stuff like that, um, that I didn't have time to answer on Sunday. So the uh, I'm going to just get right started. The first question that I'm going to answer today in the podcast is this. If Hebrews 8.13 says the law is becoming obsolete, meaning the Old Testament law, what about what Jesus said in Matthew 5.17-18? to 18? All right, good question. So this was based a question that came out of a sermon that I did a couple weeks ago on the content of the scripture and how the Bible is all about Jesus and and uh, that uh, we really need to focus our attention on Christ and not necessarily the the Old Testament that is ultimately pointing us to Christ. Let me just read Hebrews 8:13 so you know what that's saying. That says this. In speaking of a new covenant, he, meaning Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's what Hebrews 8.13 says in reference to the old covenant, the old agreement that God made with man that is written in the Old Testament. Okay, according to Hebrews 8.13, it is obsolete and growing old and ready to vanish away. That seems pretty clear. It's... uh, you know, it's it's not uh, for us anymore. Well, let's go to Hebrew, not Hebrews, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, um, which uh, expresses a similar sentiment. This is speaking about how Jesus has brought together Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, through his death. It says this, Ephesians two verse fourteen, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both Jews and Gentiles. One, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, a united humanity, in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the former hostility between Jews and Gentiles is gone because of Jesus. Uh, but listen to what verse 15 says. Again, let me read that again. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is in reference to all of the Old Testament commandments, especially, it says, expressed in ordinance, especially the law, the sacrificial and ceremonial laws and whatnot. So that again, Ephesians saying he abolished. So if we've got Hebrews 8.13 that says he's he's abolished the old covenant, and Ephesians 2 that says he has abolished the law of commandments, then when we read Matthew 5, the words of Jesus himself, it gets a little bit confusing. Matthew 5.17-18, to 18, 
uh, says this. He's in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Hold on a second, Jesus. The other scriptures say that you have. Now you're saying, don't think that. And he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not a jot or a tittle, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay, so people say the Bible contradicts itself, and I understand why they say that sometimes, because these two, these, you know, Hebrews and Ephesians versus Matthew 5, they seem to seem to be saying different things. So, so what is the truth here? So the question, if Hebrews 8.13 says the law is becoming obsolete, what about what Jesus said in Matthew 5? So, did Jesus abolish or annul the law? Yes, he did. He did do that in the sense that it no longer applies to us. We don't have to follow the old covenant law any longer. But it's not abolished in that it's not going to disappear. We don't take our Old Testaments and cut them out of our Bibles and throw them in the trash can. And that's what I think Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. We recognize that the Old Testament was good and is good. It was from God. It is his inspired word. When we read in 2 Timothy 3.16, and it talks about how the word, uh, you know, that the scriptures are inspired and and they're useful for training and correction and all this stuff. That is talking about the Old Testament because that's the only scriptures they had at the time. Uh, We apply it to the New Testament as well now. uh, But when Paul wrote that, he was talking about the Old Testament scriptures. So they are good. They are inspired. The Old Testament reveals the heart of God. It teaches us a lot about who God is. And importantly, it helps us make sense of the whole story of God as fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, in my sermon a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how the story if in four words of the whole Bible is creation, fall, rescue, restoration. Well, if you throw out the Old Testament and you just start with rescue, uh, it's hard to understand what you're being rescued from. You've got to understand the whole context of, of Jesus' coming. And that's what we get from the Old Testament. Jesus and his mission makes very little sense if disconnected from the Old Testament. So some people, you know, Andy Stanley, for example, has famously said recently that we should uh, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I get what he's saying, and I I agree with him to a point, but, uh, and he's since said, maybe that's not the right word because it sent a lot of people into confusion, but uh, his point is that we don't need to be, we're not Old Testament people anymore. Uh, But he would agree, and and, and this is what I'm saying, is that we need the Old Testament. It's still good. Uh, Don't throw it out. Don't ignore it. So yes, as Hebrews 8.13 and Ephesians 2 say, the old is becoming obsolete. It's becoming irrelevant. It's not applicable anymore, thanks to Jesus and the New Covenant. Uh, But what they're not saying in Hebrews and Ephesians is therefore throw it out and ignore it altogether. Uh, Interesting, Jesus also says in Matthew 5.18 that it all will be accomplished. So Jesus says he fulfills it, he's fulfilled the Old Old Testament, and it's all going to be accomplished. Certain parts of what were promised in the Old Testament haven't been fulfilled yet in Jesus' first coming. He fulfilled much of of what was promised, but not everything. Um, And I believe that that will be fulfilled in his second coming. Those promises of the Old Testament that God made... um, that haven't come to pass yet will be when Jesus 
comes comes back. You know, a lot of the messianic prophecies about God ruling and Jesus, you know, the Messiah sitting on the throne of the and the earth being perfected again. You know, back to an an Eden kind of situation. That's still to come when Jesus returns. So those promises of the Old Testament, they're not necessarily invalidated. Uh, every promise God made will be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So when Jesus says not a jot or a tittle, not an iota or a dot is going to pass until all is accomplished, that is true. So there's still things of the Old Testament that haven't yet been fulfilled, but will be when Jesus comes back. And last point I'll make about this, about the Old Testament versus the New Testament, what are we supposed to follow? Are we supposed to follow the Old Testament law or not? Some people would say, I have a friend who's who's a Hebrew roots guy, you know, and he thinks that we all need to follow the Jewish law. Uh, and I di- completely disagree with that. I think that Jesus has made that clear. I think that if it wasn't clear in Jesus, that it's been exceptionally made clear by Paul and the early church. Um, but here's the thing. If you're not Jewish, right, I'm not Jewish. Uh, most people listening to this are probably not ethnically Jewish. You might be. Uh, but uh, if you're not Jewish, like I'm not Jewish, the Old Testament law was never meant for you anyway. <laughs> uh, we, you know, it's it was for the Jewish people for a certain time. So uh, we have zero obligation to keep the Old Testament law. We are commanded as believers to follow the law of Christ, to follow the commandments of Jesus, as it was as Jesus said in the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey what? All that I have commanded you. He didn't say teaching them to keep the law of Moses. He said teach new converts to Christianity to to obey all that I, Jesus, have commanded. We are to follow the commandments of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' commandments, a lot of them, echo or repeat the Old Testament. So, hey, you know what? In a, in a way, we are following a lot of the Old Testament law, uh, but we focus on Jesus. We are engrafted in to the New Covenant, not to the Old Covenant. All right, that's the answer to the first question. Let's move on. second question I want to answer is a question about the canon of Scripture. Which books didn't make it into the Bible? Which books didn't make it into the Bible? So again, this is about the canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N. Canon means the authoritative list. What is the authoritative list of books in the Bible? And why are some books, uh, ancient texts, not included in the Bible? And what are they? That's the question. Which books didn't make it in? So there are ancient texts that various people at various times have felt should be considered part of the canon, part of the authoritative list of the books of the Bible. But Christians, for the most part, do not believe that they are part of God's inspired word. So what are those books and why are they not included, these ancient texts? So when we talk about the Old Testament, let's start with that. The Old Testament that we have in our Protestant Bibles is 39 books. And everyone agrees that those 39 books should be in the Old Testament. But the issue is around a set of 7 to 14 other books called the Deuterocanonical, meaning second canon, or apocryphal books, which different people use different terms. Uh, The seven that are accepted by the Roman Catholic Church and are included in their Old Testament are the books of Tobit, Judith, 
1 and 2 Maccabees, the book of Wisdom, sometimes also called Ecclesiasticus, Sirach, and Baruch. Uh, Roman Catholic Bibles include these books in the Old Testament, and some Bibles uh, include them, but they group them into a separate section between the Testaments, uh, often labeled the Apocrypha. So all of these books were ancient texts known to the Jewish community and used at various times. All of them were written much later. This is important. Much later, that is more recently than what was ultimately included in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Nobody would say that these books lack value as historical documents, but there's never been total agreement that they should be included in the books of the Old Testament. And most notably, and I think this is the key here, is that Jewish people themselves exclude these 7 to 14 books from their scriptures. So when Jewish people today read their Bibles, the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh, as they call they refer to their Bible as the Tanakh, the Torah, the, ne- the Nevi'im, and the uh, Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, um, their Hebrew Bibles uh, do not have these deuterocanonical or apocryphal books. The Jewish people themselves um, do not uh, identify these things as part of God's inspired word. So the, the, the Jewish Bible is identical in content to a Protestant Bible, uh, although organized slightly differently. Uh, we rearrange the books in a different order for some reason. But... Um, but the content, the books, the material is identical. So our the Protestant Bible is the same as as a Jewish Bible. It was around the year 170 A.D., 170 years uh, after the birth of Jesus, that the Jewish people finally closed their canon, or finally decided once and for all what would be the list of their their Hebrew scriptures, their Old Testament. Um, they made up their mind once and for all what would be in and what would be out. And in that, in that time period, they opted not to include those books. Now, how do they decide what's in and what's out? That's a good question. It's not so much a decision as it is a recognition. It wasn't a committee sitting down and saying, okay, this one's in and this one's out. Yeah, we're going to include Isaiah, but we're not going to include Judith. Um, that's not how it really worked. It was really the entire Jewish community saying... These are the books we all agree on and have for a long, long time. And these other books, these are ones that they're, um, on which there's less agreement. And the Jewish community as a whole, you know, we don't accept, um, we don't all agree on these books. And it's sort of a recognition of, of what is, uh, what, what do we already consider to be God's word and what is, is on the fringes of that. And what we already consider, what we have through the leading of, of God and His Holy Spirit uh, directing uh, us as the Jewish people, um, you know, how do we feel God has, has, has led us to, to the text? And, and so in that sort of mysterious way, um, they agreed on what they, would, what all, they already considered God's, God's Word, their Hebrew Bibles. So the Roman Catholic Church... Um, Theirs is different. They include these these uh, books, these seven to... Well, they include seven. I think it's the Eastern Orthodox Church that in, maybe includes all 14. I'm not clear on that. But the Roman Catholic Church definitely includes these seven um, for various reasons. But Protestants opted to exclude them at the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and his, and his crew, largely because the Jewish people themselves excluded them. 
said, you know, if the Jewish people don't recognize these books as part of their scriptures, why should we uh, see them as part of the Hebrew Bible? And I think that's fair. But also, they were excluded because the content is sometimes contradictory to the clear theology in the rest of the Old Testament, and for the Protestant reformers, the New Testament as well. There's some weird stuff in there, and I think that's probably why these books were on the, were on the fringes of, of the Hebrew community anyway, because the content just uh, didn't quite sit exactly right, didn't feel like it was exactly in keeping with, with the rest of the scriptures, and therefore maybe wasn't God's inspired word. Maybe it was the work of men and not the work of God's spirit. And so um, the content is a little questionable. So for the, for the uh, Old Testament, for the uh, Jewish community in the first or second century, they made that decision based on recognizing what was already accepted scripture. And then at the time of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and his crew and the other reformers and stuff, they said, you know what, we're going to go with what the, uh, the Hebrews, the Jewish people uh, say. So that's where we're at as Protestants. So that's why we don't include those books. All right, that's Old Testament. Now the New Testament. The New Testament's a whole different story. Uh, the issue with the New Testament is around uh, books that uh, were excluded that were alternative gospels and other unusual writings that have appeared over the centuries. Uh, some of them appeared, you know, very early in the, in the church, in, you know, 2nd century, a lot of these things, 3rd, 4th century. Um, they're ancient texts, uh, some of them more well-known than others. Let me just give you an example. Some of them are the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, uh, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth. Uh, if you've ever seen the Da Vinci Code movie or read the books, I haven't ever read any of that stuff or seen them, but they've popularized some of this stuff, Gospel of Thomas and things like that. Um, saying, oh, th these things contain the actual truth, you know, and we really need to go to these ancient texts for the real story. Um, but the Da Vinci Code, you need to know, is is fiction based on terrible biblical scholarship. Uh, credible Bible scholars look at the work of Dan Brown in the in the uh, Da Vinci Code, and they just laugh. They go, what a, what a nutball. He doesn't know what he's talking about at all. Um, so, yeah, though these texts... Legitimate Bible scholars say these are these are not early. They're not you know they're not in the same category as the four Gospels, um, and I'll get more into that in a minute. There are other texts, uh, not just the, not just alternative Gospels. There's other texts such as the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle of Barnabas, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, um, the Didache, which is actually the Didache is a great read, um, which were at times can all considered in contention to be part of the New Testament, uh, but ultimately were excluded from the 27 books that we have today. So the f uh, formal process of canonization of the New Testament started sometime in the second century, very, very early in church history. By the year 180, 100, sorry, 180 AD, 180 AD, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were the ones that the church uh, recognized as as being the as the ones that they were going to use. Um, even though at that time there may have been some other alternative Gospels starting to circulate, it was those four Gospels that were the oldest, um, that were ancient, really, you know, very early, all first century, that the church said, these are the ones that we, we recognize. 
by the year 325 A.D., uh, Eusebius wrote a list that contained 20 of the 27 New Testament books, saying these are the authoritative uh, scriptures for the, the church. Uh, in the year 367 A.D., Athanasius of Alexandra, uh, one of the great early church fathers, one of the, one of the men, great defenders of the Trinity, uh, wrote a list that contains the 27 that we have today. Um, that was, the, I think, the first time that the a definitive list of the 27 that we have today was, uh, was compiled. So there were different lists that emerged over the early first couple of centuries. But by the end of the fourth century, there was agreement amongst the church as to what are these 27 that are in and what's out. And that's the list that we have today. And today there's no disagreement between Catholics and Protestant as to what makes up uh, the New Testament. There's complete, complete agreement on that. Uh, four, criterion for, four criteria for inclusion. So here's four things that really decided what's in and what's out. Number one, common use by the church. Again, what I talked about with regards to the Old Testament. It's not so much a decision as to what is in and what's out. It's more of a recognition as to what is already accepted as being in and what's already accepted as being out of the canon. So for the uh, early church, they were saying, here's, you know, these 27 books, you know, almost every church, we've got scribes have made copies of these. We've got these, we're using them. We find them, we find them to be inspired. We, we um, you know, they're being widely used. And then there's these other fringe books that we've seen, but, you know, they're, they're, they haven't really caught on, you might say. Um, it's like a hymn book, you know. <laughs> every hymn book has the same, uh, the same, you know, 25 hymns that every church sings. And then there's all these other ones that the Baptist hymnal has this one, and the Catholic hymnal has this one, and the Wesleyan hymnal has this one. Uh, and they're good for their little segment, but they're not the universal anthems of the church. Um, and so these 27 books really became the universal anthems of, the, of Scripture. And, that's, and so they were recognized for that and included, therefore, in the canon. That's the first criteria of four. The second of four is that they contained coherent uh, orthodox theology. And not capital O orthodox, but lowercase orthodox, meaning mainstream um, in line with what, what the church believes is true. Um, some of these other books contain things that were questionable, uh, dubious, uh, especially, you know, stuff like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, where there's these very bizarre stories of toddler Jesus performing miracles and stuff that there's no reason at all to believe that those stories are true. They're very strange. Um, they just seem like myths. And so um, some of these things, we just the, the early church just said, yeah, that doesn't sound like Jesus, that doesn't, or that doesn't sound like the Apostle Paul. Uh, or Peter, you know, it just seems out of keeping with what we believe is true based on the rest of the scriptures that we do know for sure are true, and therefore they might have been excluded for that. Another reason, uh, third reason, criteria for inclusion is that uh, they are apostolic or close to apostolic in authorship. That means uh, who wrote these things? Were they one of the twelve apostles? Uh, or did they know the apostles? Were they part of the early church community? And all 27 of the books that we have in the New Testament that ultimately were included were written before the year 100 AD. They were all written in close proximity 
to uh, the events that were taking place, all within either, you know, the the Holy Land itself or in, you know, what is Greece today, Turkey, in that area where the Apostle Paul and others were ministering. Uh, it was all written in that area and all very early, before 100 A.D. Uh, and we know that uh, with pretty good accuracy that the people whose names are on the books that we have in the New Testament, that they wrote those books. Uh, the only one that we're not really sure about is Hebrews. Uh, no one knows who wrote Hebrews. So that one is a, is a little bit questionable. And in fact, uh, that's why some of the early lists did not include Hebrews, because they didn't know who wrote it. Um, so that's the third uh, criteria for inclusion. And the fourth is that, and I sort of got at this with the first point, that these books are discerned as bearing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the church was recognizing, you know what, we see God's fingerprints in some mystical way through these uh, through these these scriptures. And so therefore, we're going to consider them inspired and part of the Bible. So this is a long answer, but the bottom line to this is we can have confidence in our 66-book Bible. These deuterocanonical or apocryphal Old Testament books, they're interesting. They might be worth reading. They may contain truth. But since we can't be certain about them, uh, we are best not to base our beliefs on them. And likewise, the New Testament. You know, we, we've, we, have, we should have total confidence that the 27 books of the New Testament are the only ones that should be there. Um, and these other things that you might come across online or whatever, uh, or in, you know, books, works of fiction like the Da Vinci Code, they're interesting. They tell us something about certain pockets of Christianity in the early first few centuries, especially the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, the Gnostics. They were a interesting uh, break-off sect of Christianity that had some very strange beliefs, and a lot of these uh, extra-biblical uh, writings came out of that Gnostic community, um, Gnostic Gospels and other writings. So, um, they're interesting if you want to learn about what the Gnostics believed, but they, they're not part of God's inspired scriptures. I had an interesting question. It's not so much a, a theology or Bible question as it is a, um, a, a, a church leadership question or a church question, an ecclesiology question, you might say. Um, and that's this. It's with the lack of Christian values and morals in our world today, why do we no longer hear preaching slash teaching on sin and repentance in our churches? Okay, now this question is it's, it's challenging to answer because uh, it's hard to know exactly what is meant by the question. But the first thing I would say is, is that is the first part of the question a true statement? So the first part of the question is this statement, with the lack of Christian values and morals in our world today. And then the question, now is that statement true? I think largely it is true. As has always been the case, there is a lack of Christian values and morals in the world. Uh, the New Testament regularly encourages Christians to not be like the world, and that's talking about the first century world, that there was a lot of corruption in the first century, uh, and we apply that to our world as well, to the 21st century. 
The New Testament regularly encourages Christians to to, uh, not be like the world, assuming that the world is sinful and rebellious against God. So yes, the reality of a lack of Christian values or morals or ethics in our society is true and has been true for a long, long time. I would say even since Genesis chapter 3, you know, and you look back in Genesis and, and you, what was happening in the days of Noah and, and Sodom and Gomorrah and, and then through the history of Israel and, you know, even the Israelites worshiping idols and doing things that they shouldn't be doing, uh, taking many wives, taking wives from pagan nations and so on and so on. There's been a lot of wickedness in the world since the fall of man. Um, and certainly true today, too. So I think we need to be careful when we start with the assumption that things today are, are worse morally than they were before. Uh, you know, people will say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know. Or people will say, Gee, you know, uh, Pastor, you know, Jesus is going to come back soon. I just know it because look at how awful the world is. And it's, you know, to that I say, unfortunately, I think the world's been like that for thousands of years. Um, when I read history books, I learn about a lot of cruelty and violence and horror and unnecessary bloodshed and mistreatment of women and unethical rulers and pagan worship and religious wars and so on and so on and so on. Man, the, we have been doing a lot of bad stuff for a really long time. So, um, so yeah, is there a lack of Christian values and morals in our world today? Yep. Uh uh, but I don't necessarily agree that it's getting worse. Um, it's different, but it's not necessarily worse. So I would also, so to piggyback on what I just said, I would also see that in some ways the unbelieving world um, is 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 getting maybe even a little bit better, more ethical. Uh, I have atheist friends, for example, um, who have nothing to do with faith in God, but they are outstanding citizens, wonderful people. Um, you know, they're, they're great human beings. Uh, they're missing out on some pretty remarkable stuff, but nonetheless, um, you know, they're good people. Uh, and I think that many people who may not be believers in Christ, um, are sometimes still quick to, um, you know, to show compassion, to fight for the poor, to, Stand up for human rights, believe strongly in protecting the environment, women's rights, ethical treatment of animals, um, you know, treating the land with respect, natural farming practices, and so on. These are all Christian values, right? These are values, morals that are consistent with Christianity, consistent with a biblical worldview. So the premise of the question to me is challenging. In some ways, the world has always been awful and is getting worse. In other ways, the world has, you know, there's always been beauty in the world, and in some ways it's getting better, even apart from, apart from faith in God. So um, I think that, you know, it's, a, it's, it's hard for us to assess when we just focus on our, on our part of the world and in our time frame. We have to look at all of Christian history to really understand the status of, of society. But nonetheless, I think many Christians who, who feel that things are getting worse and worse morally are usually thinking about a few particular issues. Gay marriage, for example, uh, abortion, issues of, of sexuality. 
And those are definitely issues that we have to wrestle with as they bump up against Scripture. Uh, But the difficult thing is that when we take a stand, when we take a stand against particular sins, let's say, for example, homosexuality, uh, and we condemn or judge those who are not living a biblical lifestyle, then we, we are sometimes, in that instance, less loving and gracious than non-Christians who are accepting of, of some of those things. And that's problematic. <laughs> that's problematic uh, when non-Christians are more loving and gracious than believers. The most grace-filled and compassionate people on the planet should be Jesus's people. And when we highlight certain sin issues, but fail to recognize our own sin issues, then we are like the religious people who Jesus was so hard on in the Gospels, time and time again. You know, uh, Jesus said repeatedly, don't, well, not repeatedly, but Jesus said uh, at one point, you know, don't uh, point out the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a plank of wood in your own eye. Uh, someone said one time, don't judge others because they sin differently than you. I like that statement. Don't judge others because they sin differently than you. We're all dealing with stuff. And my stuff and your stuff probably isn't the same stuff. But it's all stuff. So let's stop trying to knock the stuffing out of others and work harder on knocking the stuffing out of ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Uh, I said amen, and you might have said amen. I can't hear you because this is a podcast. Anyway, however you feel about the first part of the question, about the status of society and where we're at, the question is, why do we no longer hear preaching or teaching on sin and repentance in our churches? So I guess I'd say it depends on what churches you're talking about. Some churches have gone so progressive in an attempt to appease culture that they've essentially thrown out the Bible. Um, you know, that, that's fairly obvious. And when you do that, it's, it's hard to say sin even exists anymore. You know, the Bible is, is not authoritative. Well, can you even say that there's sin? Can you even say there's a God? Recently, a couple years ago or something, there was a church in Ontario with an atheist pastor. An atheist pastor. You're not going to hear repentance being preached in a church with an atheist pastor. I can tell you that. But the question is, why do we no longer hear preaching or teaching on sin and repentance in our churches? So I'm going to assume that in our churches, that means in Baptist churches or Bible-teaching churches or evangelical churches. I, and i got to say, I don't recall a time in my 35 years of experience when I haven't heard preaching on sin and repentance in our churches. Uh, almost every sermon I've ever heard and I've ever preached contains some element of a call to uh, a call to repentance, some element of challenge, some element of here's what God's word says. Now compare that to your own life. How are you doing? How do you measure up? And what's your next step? In other words, sin and repentance. Uh, The next step, after you've identified a way that your life doesn't match God's word, is how do we turn around from the direction we're going and get back on track the way God wants us to live? That's the journey we're all on together as Christians, and that's what I hear in almost every sermon. Uh, Now, 
Maybe the question asker meant, how come preachers don't get up and rail on sin and repentance and preach on how hot hell is? You know, I want to hear more sermons like Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I guess we have to be thinking about what is going to work and what isn't going to work in the 21st century. I'm afraid that if I got up and preached like that, I'd clear the room pretty quick. <laughs> I think the only ones left to hear me would be the, the group that, you know, would be saying, Amen, brother, you tell him, pastor, you go get him. Uh, <clears throat> but then the people who really need to hear uh, and really need to experience the grace and transformative power of Jesus' love in their lives are going to miss out on it because they don't want to hear that. And so it defeats the purpose. We need to be winsome in our preaching. We need to be, uh, we need to be loving. I mean, the gospel is good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. It's a message of, of the immensity of God's love. And so that's the approach that uh, I take when I preach. Um, some homework for you if you're you know, inter- more interested in this. We're reading the book of Acts as a church. As you go through the book of Acts, note carefully what the sermons of the first Christians were like. When Peter gets up and preaches, when Paul preaches, what is the content of their sermons? What did they preach about? How did they preach and convince thousands to follow Jesus? How often did they talk about hell? That's a good question to ask. How often in those book of Acts, first century sermons that led thousands of people to Jesus, How often did those preachers talk about the fires of hell? I actually think you won't find it in there at all. Okay, the last question I'm going to answer in this podcast, and by the way, if you have hung in there for this long, whew, you have endurance. You have the gift of endurance. Um, thank you for hanging in there. Hope that it's, I've kept it somewhat interesting for you. The last question is this. In Mark 4, verse 12, Jesus said that he was teaching in a parable form so that, quote, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven, end quote question is, why can't they be forgiven? Or, I think what might what is being asked in this question, why, sorry, was Jesus trying to prevent people from understanding him, him when he spoke in parables, and therefore preventing people from trusting in him? So, this is a really a question about parables. And this is a, a, this is such a good question. I'm so glad someone asked this question, because This is a question that I have wrestled with a lot as well. And so this question really forced me to go and and do a lot of study. This one probably took me the longest to answer because of the amount of study that I did. Um, Because I've wrestled with this too. Because, you know, a lot of times you, you read the parables of Jesus. And the assumption is that Jesus is using parables, using these stories, these illustrations in his teaching uh, to try to make things clear for people in the same way that that I, you know, giving a message, uh, a sermon, I might do a, I might do a visual illustration, I might make a connection to a Star Wars movie or something, to try to help my my point become more clear. 
And I think often we think, oh, yeah, Jesus was using parables as a teaching aid. Um, and I think that that's true some of the time. But there's other times when when Jesus says things that seem to confuse people. The parables were confusing. Even the disciples pulled Jesus aside afterwards and said, Hey, uh, cool story, bro. Uh, what did it mean? You know, uh, this stuff about the you know people scattering seed. What are you talking about? It's all. It doesn't make any sense. So, in, in sometimes Jesus's parables, they they seem to confuse people more than clarify things. Um, and Jesus himself says, and uh, let me look this up in Matthew uh, thirteen. Uh, he he talks to the disciples after this parable of the sower. And he says, basically, you know what, this is, uh, this is, I tell these things on purpose so that not everyone will understand. He said, uh, the disciples said, why do you speak to them in parables? Same question that's being asked here. And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, to people who aren't his followers, to them it has not been given. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven have not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's the same basis of what was uh, quoted from Mark, Mark 4.12. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive so on and so on and so on. And then he goes down in verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he goes on to explain the parable of the sower to his disciples. So, again, we have this really bizarre thing that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, some of you... Uh, who have this spiritual insight or for whom the Holy Spirit is working or whatever, this you, you're going to get it. But for those who aren't in that place, they're not going to get it. And that's by design. Jesus designed parables that way. He's telling them that way on purpose. So what is going on here? Why is Jesus doing that? Why wouldn't Jesus want to just try to make his message abundantly clear to everybody? Wow, great question. It is baffling. Um, well, I think that there's kind of two answers to that that make sense. And one is the, I, I'm calling it the abstract art answer. So think about abstract art. Here now, here I am using an illustration. <laughs> to make things more clear and not less clear. Abstract art. Okay. Maybe a painting by some artist that's trying to illustrate an historical event, let's say. Um, but it's abstract. It's, it's blotches of, of, of color and weird shapes. Uh, and you look at that and, and it just doesn't, to the average eye, uh, illustrate the historical event that the painting is titled after or something. Um, but the longer that you look at this painting and you consider what it's trying to, you consider the title, you know, let's say it's called, uh, it's called, uh, the fathers of confederation. Okay. But it's a whole bunch of blotches or something. 
weird shapes. But the longer that you look at it and you reflect on the title of it, it begins to become deeply profound. It captures something that a photograph or a realistic painting can't can't capture. You know, a realistic painting is trying to get every little detail right so that you can look at that thing and it becomes abundantly clear what happened in that scene. Um, but yet this abstract art, it, it's not trying to make it clear. It's trying to pull you into a deeper and more profound understanding. It's trying to provoke the imagination. And those who get it, get it. And those who don't, don't. And I think that that's part of what Jesus was doing with telling parables. I think he was, he was trying to take people into a deeper and more profound understanding of things like the kingdom of God. What does that mean? You know, and people are just like, Jesus, you're nuts, man. You're not making any sense. But then other people are like, wow, man, like that's surreal, dude, profound, you know? Right? So it's like the parables for those who were into it, those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, they got it, and it made, meant something powerful to them. And that the people, but the people who didn't, who were on the outskirts, it didn't make any sense. I think that could be one of the ways to answer the question about what parables were about. Not necessarily just sermon illustrations to make things clear, but uh, uh, an abstract art kind of thing to pull you into a deeper understanding. Okay. The other thought is that perhaps Jesus was cloaking his message in parables uh, to pro- as, a, as a form of protection against uh, the opposition that was building against him. So, you know, one of the parables, for example, the parable of the, uh, the workers in the vineyard is very much, um, it's very much preaching against the Jewish uh, religious leadership. You know, these workers in the vineyard, they end up killing the son of the owner of the vineyard. Well, He's very much clearly, you know, slamming the Jewish people that in a, in a few days from when he told the parable were going to kill him, the Son of God. Uh, and st- stories like that where Jesus is, is, is he, he's saying very controversial and challenging things to people that are in power. And so it's possible that he may have been using parables not only to take people into a more profound and deeper understanding but also to uh, kind of speak in code to protect himself. Um, you know, he, he was trying to maybe buy time, right? He had a, he, he had a plan, this three-year ministry. If, if uh, too early in his ministry he said something that was going to get him killed, uh, that would derail God's plan of salvation and, and, the, and the plan that Jesus had. So... Um, that could be part of the reason that he spoke in parables as well, this abstract art thing, and maybe to cloak and, and protect himself, uh, cloak his message to protect himself against opposition. And maybe both of those things are true, and maybe there's another answer. Uh, maybe you've got another way that you, another answer to that question. I'd love to hear it. All right, that's it. Thank you for tuning in. If you made it to the end, Congratulations, you get a gold star for endurance. Um, and if you have more questions, man, I love to answer theology questions. I like, I, I thrive off of this stuff. So if you have more questions, send me an email. My email address is michael at emmanueltruro.org. 
maybe a Q&A podcast will become a regular thing. And maybe I can spread them out a little more. So we'll do one question per podcast and you don't have to commit 30 hours of your week to listen to my voice drain on your nerves. Okay. Thanks so much. God bless you. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at emmanueltruo.org if you have more questions or follow-up questions based on something I've said here today. Uh, thanks for tuning in. God bless you. Join us here Sundays on uh, at Emmanuel at 10 a.m. We'd love to have you. Take care.